the Gerontological Society of America, meaningful lives as we age. Welcome to GSA on Aging. Welcome to the Social Research Policy and Practice in Health Sciences GSA series podcast on the crisis in long-term care, episode two, moral distress and what keeps me awake at night. I am your host, Deborah Dobbs. I'm an associate professor from the School of Aging Studies at the University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida. I have researched issues of quality and staffing related to assisted living for more than 20 years with a particular focus on palliative and hospice care for persons with dementia, as well as disaster preparedness, which includes COVID and a recent National Institute on Aging funded study where our research team interviewed assisted living staff about their experiences during the pandemic. I am privileged to be here with our two expert guests to discuss the topic of moral distress in staff and long-term care. First, we have Dr. Oscar Tunalilar, who is an assistant professor at the Institute on Aging and the Tulane School of Urban Studies and Planning at Portland State University. His research focuses on resident and staff well-being and long-term care. He co-authored a series of journal articles and reports describing the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic in assisted living communities, including one in the gerontologist titled, What Keeps Me Awake at Night? Assisted Living Administrator Responses to COVID-19. That article was the inspiration for the title of this podcast episode. Second, we have Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Organizational Systems and Adult Health at the University of Maryland School of Nursing and a nurse practitioner who specializes in improving care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers. She teaches in the Adult Gerontological Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and mentors doctoral students. She has served as the principal investigator on externally funded research grants that have focused on teaching caregivers and long-term care strategies to optimize function and physical activity and effectively manage behavioral symptoms with older adults with dementia. Dr. Gallick continues to provide direct patient care to older adults with dementia and their caregivers in assisted living communities, nursing homes, and also has developed a house call practice for dementia symptom management. She is the editor-in-chief of Caring for the Ages and has served as past president of the Gerontological Advanced Practice Nurses Association. While COVID since early 2020 has affected residential care communities and nursing homes in devastating ways, for some Um, information on assisted living, according to the National Center for Health Statistics National Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Study, approximately 25,000 residents died due to COVID and 445 staff between January 2020 and mid-July 2021. The smaller assisted living communities from the Midwestern regions of the country had higher rates of infection compared to the medium-sized assisted living communities, finding it challenging to social distance and care for residents in their home-like environments. There were challenges to get staff to comply with vaccinations once they were available. The Kaiser Family Foundation reports for all of long-term care staff rates to be at 82% vaccinated. And this is not specific to just assisted living, but both assisted living and nursing home. Sometimes it's challenging to find national data on residential care communities because federal data focuses more on nursing homes. So that's a good segue into my first question for our guest speakers today. First, I'd like to ask, you, Dr. Gallant, or Beth, um, what are the differences between nursing homes and assisted living facilities? Thanks very much, Deborah, and I'm pleased to be here with everybody today. It's interesting to kind of note, um, Ozzie and I will be talking about the differences between nursing homes and assisted living, 
But during the pandemic, the guidance that was put out was really designed for nursing homes and not so much designed for assisted living, even though assisted living facilities wound up following them. So nursing homes, also called skilled care facilities or skilled nursing facilities, provide a a wide range of um, medically skilled services as well as personal care services. Types of things that are included include nursing care, 24-hour supervision, meals, assistance with activities of daily living and recreational activities. Also, there's rehabilitation services such as physical and occupational and speech therapy. Some people stay in a nursing home for a short period of time after an acute hospital stay and then return home. However, there are many nursing home residents who live there permanently because they have ongoing or chronic physical or mental conditions that require consistent supervision and care. And payment of nursing homes includes private funds, long-term care insurance, and Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, And nursing homes have to follow state and federal guidance. And so I'm going to turn it over to Ozzy to tell us a little bit about assisted living. Thank you, Beth. And thank you, Deborah, for that great introduction. So assisted living communities primarily cares for an older population who who is at greater risk for COVID-19 impact. Around 80% of their residents are 75 years and older. And, And these communities typically provide room and board with at least some meals, two meals a day, and around-the-clock uh, on-site supervision and personal care assistance with uh, activities such as bathing or dressing or medication management. So in terms of distinctions between uh, nursing homes and assisted living, I, th- I think the first thing to emphasize is uh, assisted living communities are not federally licensed, but licensed by each state which means there is a lot of variation across states in terms of not only how they are defined and and what assisted living includes in the term in terms of size and services, but also variation in in staffing requirements and um, admin qualifications, infection control measures, you know, Medicaid funds spent on on resident care uh, and as such. You know, when you consider all these variation across states and even within states across different assisted living facilities, th- that creates a lot of friction when it comes to a one-size-fits-all recommendation or, or rules that were being implemented, especially early on in the pandemic based on nursing facilities. Another distinction is what can be called in, in the philosophy of assisted living so that social model of care and social engagement as as core principles of assisted living. And when we kind of juxtapose those rules related to um, visitor and family restrictions and other rules related to infection control, I think these the, the, the philosophy created a lot of situations for staff to feel the conflict on one hand to, to provide person-centered care and on the other hand, you know, follow rules and regulations around COVID-19 prevention efforts. And, and uh, I guess the final thing I want to emphasize in assisted living is, is the staffing mix and levels and how different it is compared to nursing facilities in terms of limited nursing as well as kind of low or non-existing staffing ratios um, across states. Well, thank you for that, for both of you, for those. You know, de- 
differences in the definitions and what services and the differences in staffing that both nursing homes and assisted living communities provide. Uh, next, I want to ask, uh, I'll start with you, uh, Ozzy, you can go uh, answer this first. What has been happening in long-term care facilities as the number of COVID cases has diminished and why? Yeah, thank you. So that's that's a great question. And I, I'd like to recast it in terms of what's happening now and looking back. So in my home state of Oregon, for instance, there were 167 active outbreaks in long-term care facilities as of this September. Uh, and, and that's not very different from really from last year's experience when there were 182 outbreaks. And this is a state if you think about it, with uh, 570 assisted living and 130 nursing homes. Um, now, of course, we got to acknowledge that um, total deaths per identified cases in these settings have is lower thanks to vaccination and boosters, but these outbreaks continue to affect um, assisted living as well as nursing homes, their residents and staff two and a half years later with perhaps even increasing staffing challenges, lack of resources, and changing regulations, rules, and, uh, and, and policies. And do you think, just, just a quick follow-up to that, do you think um, with the different variants that they're more susceptible to infections, but maybe not as severe in terms of the, the symptoms and the illness? So, that, so you have just as many infections, but looking at hospitalizations, have those gone down? Um, I, I'll leave that to epidemiologists. I think one of the things we are seeing is, in assisted living at least, is this lack of data collection. And that prevents us to see clearly what's going on. And that's one of the things that is that is changing with this, this attitude of moving on from the pandemic. And, you know, even at the beginning, uh, assisted living data were hard to come by because of the state focus. Um, but I would like to hear if Beth has a, wants to chime in. Sure. Actually, I, I would. And this is not, this is just based on my own clinical practice and experience and not so much on national uh, data. But at the height of the pandemic, a, a lot of the places I practice um, are quite small. So they may only have six to eight, maybe up to 16 residents living in a site. And that's something that's much different from nursing homes that tend to be much larger. And um, often in these smaller facilities um, or homes, um, caregivers tend to live in. And so during the height of the pandemic, before the availability of vaccinations, um, those facilities went into kind of lockdown because they had caregivers living in the home. And um, they didn't get COVID, but they were isolated. Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily in their rooms because they weren't having any outside exposure and telehealth was being used and families were restricted from visiting. But what we saw as, as things, as people became vaccinated and things opened up were the places that hadn't been impacted before with COVID-19 infections, those individuals um, uh, eventually did uh, acquire COVID, but they weren't, um, as ill and they weren't uh, necessarily going to the hospital for treatment because there had been some time 
um, in advance to really address advanced care planning on whether or not hospitalization would be uh, needed or not. Um, so I think um, those are some of the changes that, that we've been seeing. But there continues to be um, outbreaks um, and um, you know, facilities may not be, um, uh, you know, screening as much in terms of, um, you know, testing before people are coming in. And we're relying more on, um, you know, PPE that fortunately now is, is much more readily available. Right. Good. And I think that's reflected in that, uh, in my introduction with the data from, you know, the palliative uh, post-acute long-term care study that it says that there were now there's higher infection rates in smaller in certain regions of the country. I mean, it, it was kind of shock, startling to me to see that they had higher infection rates in in the Midwest in the smaller, meaning 25 or less beds, compared to median size um, assisted livings. Okay, let's um, along those same lines. How has the situation changed as the numbers of COVID cases went down in terms of what's going on with staff in these settings? And we can start with um, Ozzy. Yeah. Um, so every year we send out a survey to assisted living communities in Oregon, and um, early this year, you know, we repeated that exercise, and we found that one third of staff had left in the past six months. Mm -hmm. And our interviews with uh, assisted living administrators also suggested that some administrators were saying we can't find anybody because um, you know people per perceive this caregiving as, as a dying job. Job. And then they haven't had the same people on the payroll in two consecutive payrolls, and and this kind of you know increased um, increased turnover. I think it is what can be called the the second wave of kind mm -hmm. of resignations following uh, the first wave when people were being more when staff were being more like you know I got to protect my family. I can't be here. Uh, so this is more like after the burnout, what comes next, which is, which is the high turnover. I mean, 40, one third of staff, that's, that's quite high. And we actually found, our team found that there was an increase in the, the share of communities reporting a harder time uh, hiring, retaining, and scheduling staff compared to 2021. And, and we also hear a great, uh, much increased use of agency staff which mm -hmm. comes with its own problems, you know, when you when you think about it, and some of which we can talk about. Right. Do you think some of our interviews, because we interviewed 50 assisted living uh, administrators in Florida, uh, very similar to what you had done in your study in Oregon, and um, what we were hearing about staff trying to incentivize staff to stay, <laughs> retention, staff retention, um, they said one of the problems was the money, the stimulus money, you know, the CARES Act money that was going to people during COVID and they they had people leaving because they were getting the unemployment and the extra funds. Um, and so they figured, well, you know, I can get that money and not work. I wonder, I, did you see any of that as a trend? That's what we had heard from some administrators. We, we definitely heard it and we tried to make sense of it. It, it seemed to come up in, in, in rural 
communities more. I, I can't say we have clearly identified it, but it definitely came up with our interviews with administrators in terms of why would they work here when they can just not work and, mm -hmm. and, and still get paid at the same level or similar level that they are getting paid here, um, which is probably driving some of the, the wage increases that we are seeing. Right, right. And Beth, do you have, uh, what do you have to add to that? So I've kind of seen um, at least um, at some of the facilities where I practice and, and have associations with that the focus was probably a little more in getting people in the door um, with job fairs, hiring bonuses, et cetera, and probably less attention to retention. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I think that created this disparity from the staff who had been there all along versus the, the staff who were new who were coming in. Um, some facilities um, that couldn't get staff actually were uh, managing their census by closing beds or closing apartments so that they didn't fill them because they just didn't have enough staff to care for um, more residents. Right, right. And then I know another... That probably changed, and maybe we're going to talk about that in a later question, but um, the vaccinations, and did people leave because they were required to be vaccinated staff? How did, were there mandates for vaccinations, and um, how did that play into that? And we can answer that later if that's a question. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, in my experience, while there was some of that, I think that that was more limited. I, I, I think that um, people who left um, eventually became kind of exhausted. And as um, Ozzy was saying, those two waves of resignations, um, with the second one, I think almost in many respects being worse than the first. Um, because these are long-standing staff who had been there a really long time and just um, became exhausted and and wound up leaving. So I think less related to vaccinations, although sure there were some. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Now, how do regulations help or hinder with the staffing issues? Ozzy, you want to answer this one first? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so at the beginning of the pandemic, in the first year or so, <clears throat> the regulations and guidance and rules for, for assisted living uh, communities were changing quite frequently. Um, and, and, you know, many communities continue to report difficulties with keeping up with the changing information and conflicting information and trying to get family buy-in to understand and follow rules and policies and <clears throat> procedures. And we also heard about communities having a hard time getting residents like out of their apartments for activities and dining and with the usual assistant types requiring more staff now to address, you know, those, those, uh, increased regulations or, or different regulations for infection control. Um, and um, yeah, so it, 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 I think it creates this, this conflict, you know, it puts uh, staff and communities where there's, there's a lot of opportunities for the kind of care that they want to provide against uh, following the rules. Sure, sure. And I know we started out, and maybe Beth, you could speak to this next, 
we started out saying that the regulations, assisted living didn't have separate guidelines from a federal because they're state, you know, regulated. They were following guidelines from um, the CDC and um, CMS that were really for nursing homes. And that conflicted in, in certain ways, if, if you want to speak to speak to those differences. Sure. Um, you know, I think when we think of nursing homes, they're probably one of the most highly regulated um, industries in, in our country today, um, down to like how wide your ha hallways are and the, um, you know, how the doors, what the doors need to be made of and um, all, all different kinds of things. And um, while assisted living doesn't really have those because it really comes from a social model of care. Um, and so those uh, regulations aren't as significant. Also, in terms of staffing, um, in terms of licensure, you may not have a nurse who's present in assisted living. They may be in some of those larger buildings, but not in some of the smaller ones. And they may have a delegating nurse who's delegating um, tasks to um, direct care providers. So, you know, it, it, it really is... Um, you know, quite different and trying to meet um, the regulations for nursing homes, which are caring for a, a much more um, medically challenged community in assisted living that, um, you know, really is a different environment made it, made it difficult. Yes, definitely. And just I'll follow up real quickly too. We talk about agency staff being used more in assisted living and during COVID, agency staff going from place to place and coming into contact with more people, that would bring in more risk for infection, COVID infections to the assisted living. You know, that agency staff is something that you didn't, they were essential workers. You were letting them into the building just like you, you know, uh, another compassionate care and, and hospice was, was coming into the building. And so, you know, one recommendation our group made with some research we did was to, if they could, try to limit the number of assisted living communities that they were serving, that third-party provider home healthcare staff uh, were serving during that time. So there wasn't so much, you know, spread happening. And then we've already talked about the family role, which is much more prominent in assisted living than nursing homes. So making them, you know, Candace Kemp's work is hashtag more than a visitor, um, you know, to restrict their visits. It, it really was a lot on the staff. So if there's nothing more on that, I'm going to uh, move to our topic of moral distress. And if Beth, you want to tell us what, what is moral distress and what causes moral distress? Sure. I, I looked up um, a couple definitions of moral distress and the one that I, kind of like the best because it was easiest to understand was from the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. And it says that moral distress occurs when you know kind of the ethically correct or the right action to take from your, you know, training, um, but you're constrained from taking it by external forces that you can't control. And um, moral distress really threatens the core values 
uh, staff members as well as um, you know the communities. And it's distinct from other forms of distress experienced by healthcare workers, such as burnout and compassion fatigue. Um, and it's because you know the right thing to do, but you can't do it. And so some examples would be, um, you know, I, I had staff explain to me how they wanted to let um, family members who were such a part of um, the care delivery process and the support of residents into the facilities, but they couldn't because of the regulations. And they watched individuals with dementia, you know, kind of deteriorate and they didn't die um, from COVID, but, um, you know, there are, they maybe um, weren't eating as well, weren't interacting with others. Um, so those things happened and, and kind of set up that moral distress um, because they knew the right thing to do was, you know, to kind of provide this support, but they, they couldn't do it um, given the regulatory environment and dealing with this, this pandemic. I've heard other people describe how um, individuals with dementia would wander out of their rooms, which is kind of quite common. And, you know, using person-centered care approaches, you may walk with them, make sure they have a mask, and then you're eventually taking them back to their room uh, to try to engage in an activity there. Um, but um, when some of the surveyors came in, facilities got in trouble for um, doing that, for, um, you know, allowing even a few minutes for them to be out of their room while they redirected them back and kind of hearing requests from some surveyors saying this person needs to be medicated so they don't come out of their room, which if they did that would be the inappropriate use of medications as a form of chemical restraint. So, so hearing these different things and really, um, you know, it was these situations that caused, uh, you know, a significant amount of moral distress. Um, because they would, again, know the correct thing to do, but we're stuck in this no-win situation. Yeah, yeah, very good. Ozzy, do you have um, something to add to that? Other um, yeah, I think Beth's examples are great examples. The, the structural part, I think, is, is kind of what differentiates, you know, when you have lack of PPE and other equipment to follow, you know, what you know to be good, uh, infection control practices or, you know, when you just don't have enough staff to provide the care that you know that's needed. And and perhaps I'm, I'm talking here from an administrator's perspective a little bit <clears throat> because of the interviews we had with them. Um, but, you know, they describe these situations similar to what Beth was describing. You know, how do you juggle responsibilities of wearing PPE all day in apartments that, you know, residents wants to keep at 80 degrees or, you know, mm -hmm. keeping your face shields on, you know, getting foggy while you're trying to provide them with bath to, with a resident. Um, so, you know, all these things, I think, uh, they, they come up with and, and it, they, they are at times, I think, perceived and they are in, in conflict with the kind of person-centered care practices that, um, some, you know, some staff would, would, would like to provide, I mean, all, all staff would like to provide. Right. And um, I looked up an article today, just some different examples, I think from the same site you just gave, <laughs> Beth. And, um, and what's the opposite of moral distress? 
is moral resilience and how do we achieve moral resilience and that is compromise to what's causing the moral distress uh, ethical reasoning and that example you gave well go ahead and you know you may be breaking the regulations by letting that person with dementia wander and um, you know have their mask off but doing the right thing just making sure they're safe you know staying away from others but still letting them do that and I was in assisted living during the time when COVID was going on doing some research and that's what was happening on the ground it's oh she's gonna wander she's <laughs> you know we can't make her go back to her room we could try five times she's just gonna come back out we're not gonna lock her in a room we're not gonna you know so we're just gonna keep her away from everyone else and since she's not wearing a mask and, and that just resonates with me in terms of how to get, you know, reduce that moral distress. Okay, the next question is what is what is the impact of facility closures? And I believe uh, Beth, if you want to start with this response. So I think we're really at the beginning stage of this. Um, and again, um, we have more data about nursing homes um, than we do assisted living. We know that um, a, a report was done by the American Healthcare Association and the National Center for Assisted Living. And we know that um, 300 nursing homes closed during the pandemic. And they're estimating, and this is where they're combining that nursing home assisted livings together, that an additional 400 to 500 long-term care facilities are expected to close within the next year unless they receive um, more financial support um, because many of them were spending a lot of their their funds on, you know, buying expensive PPE and, you know, bringing in resources and things for the staff. Um, and, you know, they weren't having the admissions um, or because one first people didn't want to come because everybody was kind of in lockdown at home. Um, mm -hmm. But then, you know, later when they did want to come, uh, when when admissions were possible, there wasn't the staff available to, to care for them. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think we're going to be, um, you know, faced with more challenges with facility um, closures as, as we, you know, continue to move through. And while many people would like to stay in their homes, um, for, for it's not always possible or feasible. Um, and, you know, we, we can talk a little bit more about, you know, what that would be like um, if we didn't have long-term care as an option. Home care, interestingly enough, has had even more challenges with staffing crises um, than assisted living in nursing homes. Yes, for, for sure. Um, I also, did you say, just to clarify, that there's not good data on closures in assisted living? Not that I could locate. I think you're right. I just yeah. You can speak to that. I, I, I looked. It, a lot of it was projections, um, yeah. and most of it really focused on nursing homes. Again, because there's not that federal, right. um, uh, you know, kind of data collection. It's happening at the state level, or may not be happening at the state level. Yeah, I think even even pre-pandemic, um, you know, the 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 prevalence of assisted living closures and their impact, I think, was limited. Deborah, I think from your school, there was a study, um, yep, I was if I remember. 
yeah, yeah. June and, and myself. And but we had to, yeah, we had to use our state data. So to get that at a national level, there'd have to be someone in every state, or or, or you know, somebody could propose a study to go through. It would be a lot of work, but it could be a you know an effort of many different institutions to, you know, every state does track that, but it is not at a federal level. Yeah, perhaps we can call out to our listeners here. Um, you know, that's a, that's a ripe area, especially in terms of the impact of these closures. Um, if you if you think about like this the substitution research between nursing homes and assisted living and. And what happens when nursing home closes? And now what happens if both types of um, uh, communities close? Um, you know, what, what would be the impact of that on, on communities? I think that's a ripe area for, for research. I do too. And like you said, the home health is, is no better. It's, it's, even, it's a lot worse in terms of staffing. Okay. Um, what? would well i think we've started to already talk about this but what would a world without long-term care be like what would it look like you know we were just talking about that but more on that um beth if you have more to add on that sure i, I mean i think it would pressure families even more um you know again while m many individuals would like to stay at their own home for care sometimes their needs are just too complex or families can't keep them safe or have um, com competing demands with work as well as childcare and, and, and other issues that, that make it too difficult um, to provide care at home. Um, there are programs like the PACE programs um, that can be helpful in this, you know, in, in trying to provide care at home, but there's not enough of them to go around to be to be able to um, really have a significant national impact. And family members would result in, um, you know, really bearing that responsibility for the direct caregiving. Right. Um, so I think there will always be a place for um, long-term care. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that the the Good places are are still with us, um, yes. and you know have have a the opportunity to stay in business. Right, Ozzy, do you have something to add to that? No, I support every word that that <laughs> I just said. Right, right. Um, in terms of yeah, I guess we've got could be the next question. We've got a lot of uh, ideas here, so. What can medical leaders do to help support long-term care staff and mitigate moral distress? So, so yeah, I'll, I'll start with this. So one is trying to make sure that, um, that your staff have the appropriate supplies to keep them as well as residents safe. Um, and that also that, there's appropriate staffing. And if you can't get the appropriate staffing um, consistently, that you consider downsizing in terms of your census. Um, yeah. Because you you won't, you know, you won't be delivering good care and you won't be able to keep staff who are faced with um, you know, a, a resident care assignment that um, is is just too large, um, you know, given the, the human resources as well as the physical resources. The, the other thing I think that can be done is, you know, be 
transparent and honest and listen, listen to the staff's concerns. You, you may not always have an answer and it's important not to be defensive, but listen to what they have to say. The, the other thing that I've found that um, goes a long way is um, for those of us who may be in more administrative or, uh, you know, kind of medical uh, positions to help. Um, you know, rather than saying, you know, if a patient you're examining as a clinician says to you while you're listening to their heart and lungs, I have to go to the bathroom, take them. <laughs> You'll get a great opportunity to assess their gait yeah. um, and see their skin and other things. And it will be a help to the staff. And then let the staff know that you did that so they don't have to come back shortly right. after right. and do it again. Um, you know, or if there's someone who, you know, needs extra help and, you know, needs somebody to sit with or keep company with while you're doing your documentation, take that resident with you. Mm-hmm. Um, just the more that you can pitch in and let the frontline staff and the direct caregivers really see that their work matters and, you know, that you're there to support them and, and to be a part of it, that makes a a big difference. And then as an educator, I also want to um, encourage facilities that this is the time where you may be able to attract the next generation of healthcare providers into your facility. So I know we're worried about having students and other people come in, but we're letting visitors and other folks in. And so consider um, having uh, your providers precept or provide clinical experiences for students and, and trainees um, because they'll remember that. Um, and, you know, we want to give them a good experience and access um, so that they can be part of that next generation of, of care providers. Yeah, that's very important. Ozzy, do you have something to add to this? Yeah, I think it's... it's um... I think those are all, all great suggestions from Beth. Um, I think um, one thing would be to kind of focus on the core drivers of, of moral distress. It's, you know, the, the difference between, you know, is, is there training needed or are there resources needed? So focus on mm-hmm. that structural part, right? Because those are the things that kind of ad- admin management can can be able to provide. Um, so if if training isn't the issue, if there's more core reasons behind the moral distress uh, and the burnout, so, the, you know, because identifying causes is, is quite important, um, I, I think. And, and whenever in assisted living side, in our interviews, whenever we heard about happy administrators, they were the ones who had their kind of core team of staff who 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 they they got to keep they were you know they they fe- expressed they were lucky to have their backs and and I think I would be afraid that this third round of of perhaps resignations or turnover is is going to get into that kind of core teams of staff and and I wonder you know I, I kind of worry about that future of staffing in that sense yes and then. I've spoke just anecdotally to some nurse aides have been there for a long time, but they are getting up there in age, <laughs> you know, the baby sixties and I'm getting, you know, this is physical, physically demanding work and I'm getting told to do this and I need to do something else. So that that's another 
you know, it might not be for that they had negative experiences. And I'm sure it's always been challenging, but we've got to think of the cohorts of, of caregivers and get that next generation in there for sure. Uh, uh, next question and, and our last question, then we'll start to wrap it up. But what can families do to support staff? So a, a couple things. Um, one is staff don't like to be um, monitoring people and reminding people consistently related to infection control measures. Um, so one thing families can do is, you know, consistently follow the infection control procedures that are in place at the facility where your loved one lives. Um, another is to like try to talk with the staff to find out the best way to do communication, uh, you know, particularly in times of short staffing, um, it may be difficult for staff to have time to return a phone call. So are there other methods of communicating? And maybe that's, um, you know, coming to care plans regularly. Um, now, you know, we've we've used technology a lot during the pandemic, and I, I think that's one of the little silver linings. Um, you know, people don't necessarily have to be physically present, but, you know, having opportunities for Zoom discussions in care plans that are already scheduled and happening. Um, and, and just, you know, when you, people don't get into caregiving careers because they want to hurt people, they, they get into it because they want to help. And so when you see staff doing something good or kind of going, you know, going that extra mile, recognize that um, just with some few words um, to that person or letting their supervisor know or thanking them, um, it, those things really uh, can mean a great deal. Yeah, that, that's very true. I just read a quote from a paper my dissertation student, my doctoral student student writing her dissertation, and had a good example of that, that you know, the administrators sent out like hero of the week letters to the families of the, the caregiver didn't know it, but they sent them out to the family members of the person they were caring for. And then that family member would come in and say, oh, I heard that you were here on the week. And it was a real surprise, like pleasant surprise to the staff. They didn't even, they didn't get the, um, you know, the message that was come from the family. So I thought that was a good example. Ozzy, do you have anything to add about family's role? Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we, we had another round of interviews. And one of the things that were coming up is that when families were hearing from facilities, you can't come in or, you know, like we, we, there is no way you can see your resident. I think a lot of the frustration was directed at them, at the people and staff who were telling them these things. And I think that's, that's, I think that doesn't, like, I don't think staff agreed with some of those, some of those measures, but they were the ones who took the brunt of, of, of public's ire, perhaps. Uh, and, and, you know, they were helpful measures, but still it created a lot of friction uh, in the relationship between families and staff and, and, and communities um, at, at times. So I think creating those communication cha uh, channels, keeping them up, and, and, you know, just keeping in mind that everybody has, like Beth was emphasizing, everybody has the resident's best interest in mind. Um, it, it is one way to be quite helpful, I think. So that's a, that's a good point. Very good point. 
So to wrap up, I want to ask both of you what you think can be done and how the public can support long-term care staff and any solutions to these challenging times for long-term care. I'll see if you want to, or, or Beth, you go next. Sure. Um, so I, I think that the long-term care community has kind of suffered for a long time um, with a history of bad press. If you type in nursing home or assisted living and look at kind of the latest news articles that you see out there, oftentimes they're going to have a negative slant. Um, and if, if you consider things the other way, um, think about the during the pandemic when um, those working in hospitals in acute care setting were, were hailed as heroes, and they rightfully were, um, whereas individuals working in long-term care facilities um, even though they were putting themselves at similar risk and, and oftentimes working with less resources and less supplies to keep them and the residents safe were kind of cast as the villains in this, um, even though that really wasn't the case. Um, during the pandemic, a, a, a nursing assistant that I um, had worked with talked about how she stopped at the store uh, while she was coming home from work and still had her badge on and was, you know, kind of in her uniform. And somebody saw her from behind in kind of a nursing uniform and said, oh, are you working at the hospital? And when she turned around, you know, her badge showing she was at the, the uh, long-term care facility and the person, you know, kind of said, oh, you're at the place where everybody gets sick and, you know, being, you know, more derogatory. So just um, showing grace to people and, um, you know, hopefully I would love to be able to get more good stories out there. Um, I know that um, there's a wonderful, wonderful book. I've, I've shared it with my friends and they said, now we understand why you like uh, long-term care so much. It's called A Dog Walks Into a Nursing Home. Oh. And it, it really talks about, the thing I love about it, I love dogs, but the other piece is it, it talks about how this public nursing home was really kind of part of the community. And I, I think you know, we need to start seeing assisted living facilities, other um, post-acute and long-term care facilities as parts of our community and not something that's separate um, where the community is involved. Um, so having things, my students um, read that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great book, but having things like, you know, volunteers come in and, you know, offering space in the facilities for, you know, the Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts to meet. Yeah, or, those intergenerational programs. Yes, yes. So there's lots of opportunities to really kind of have your facility be part of the community, but the community needs to respond as well. Yeah, that's good. And last but not least, Ozzy, do you have any final concluding comments or thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with what Beth said. And I, I would also say, um, just to conclude, uh, COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic has been an awful and, and quite trying experience for, for assisted living and nursing homes, all residential care. Um, but one silver lining could be that if, if we could keep up, keep the, um, the discussion, public discussion as to what kind of long-term care do we want in the United States and having that now rather than later and you know even now we might be a bit late but keep having that conversation i think would be one support i think public would have how do we fund it how do we channel enough resources 
to to these communities so that they can thrive and you know take take good care of our um, our older adults and people with disabilities. Yes, very very good comments. Well, I thank both of you for speaking on this issue today, and we will end there. Thanks again for listening. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.